serves. This is Sir Gene with your morning update in the afternoon. This is Sir Gene with uh, Sir Dude Name Ben Name Ben. How are you today, Ben? I'm doing well, you evil heathen. Yes, we're going to keep using that line, are we? I don't know, man. I gotta, okay. I gotta. Okay, math get, and I gotta get major. under CSB's skin a little bit. <laughs> you know, he, he's he's trying to get under mine. So, well, there is a solution for that. It's called block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't. I'm not that mad at the guy. I'm not either. I just, I think it's it's probably the thing that pissed him off the most is that I blocked him. Gotcha. You got some new audio hardware, so we're gonna hear a, a cleaner, better version of you. Hopefully a little bit, yeah. Maybe Hopefully. dirtier version of you. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, so I, I got uh, a little bit of a mic upgrade. What got did you a, get, Ben? I got the Electro Voice 320. I got the Oh, uh, oh the, the mic that Adam's been using forever. Yeah, and you and everybody recommended to me, so how, how mm-hmm. can I go wrong? I but, do really uh, like it. I think it, it is a mic that requires the least amount of pro, uh, post-processing. Yeah, it is good right out of the bat, and even if used with a like a lower end audio interface, it's like still, I'm using now, like you're using now <laughs> temporarily. <laughs> it's still a massive improvement. And if you were to get one of the other mics that are recommended, like the RE20, its older brother, or the uh, SMB7, those mics typically require more post processing. They don't. They're not as lively sounding and don't have as strong a signal. So they need more, mm. uh, more boost from the preamp and people have products like a cloud lifter, which actually is an inline booster, things like that to really get the most out of those mics. And they cost about 150 bucks more. So, or at least a hundred last I checked. So yeah, you do are. sound better, which is well, great. Thank you. Good. I hope so. Hopefully my a cheap little PreSonos audio interface holds up for us until I can get something better. So It'll be fine. You know, I, I am doing processing on incoming stream for you. So you're... Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah you're, you're taken care of. <laughs> now, um, anything you do on your own, of course, then, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll work up to that. So uh-huh. I, I really want to get the uh, Motu that you have, but... Damn, they're back ordered. Yeah, and they've been back ordered for probably a couple of months now, which is yeah. Not apparently, a good thing. they had an issue at the factory, and then the chip shortage makes sense. And uh, I, I talked to the guy at Sweetwater, and what he mm-hmm. said was it's going to be at least twenty twenty three before they get anything in. Oh my god, the rest of the year, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it, well, I, they're like twenty twenty three out. So there is a more expensive solution. You know that, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to do the more expensive okay. solution they, it's there, Gene. Same company. It's the big brother of my unit. My unit is for two microphones. You can get the one for eight microphones. Gene, and I will probably only bucks. ever need one. Oh, I know. I've only ever used one as well. And, of course, then the other solution, if you don't, don't want to go with the Motu, which I do think is the not only the, the cleanest sounding, but also gives you the most flexibility. But plenty of people very successfully are using the product that was somewhat of a knockoff of the product Adam and I did. And that's the Rodecaster, which is a, the things even shaped the way that our prototype was. Yeah. The, uh, the Rodecaster looks interesting. I've mm-hmm. read a lot of reviews and it, it seems like channel two, depending on what unit you get, you get some hum. It mm-hmm. looks like they've got some quality control issues that kind of gives me a little hesitation. So I'm actually looking at a Yamaha, interface that might be if i'm going to wait for the motu that might be a good 
step uh, away from what I'm using now that has some inline analog EQ that can be done, things like that. So it's not the big processing board that the Motu is, but it's uh, better. You look at the Motus on eBay at all, or are they going used? Yeah, if you can find them, they are going for brand new prices plus. One guy's got apparently a pretty good supply, and (laughs) he's asking $1,000, essentially. $1,000 bucks for them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Their retail is $650, I think. Yeah. 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 You know what? I am going to... And we are recording, so everybody's hearing this, but I'm, I'm going to ping a friend of mine I used to do a podcast with and see mm-hmm. if he's still using his, and if he's not, if he wants to sell it. Well, that would work. I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to used gear in good shape. Yeah. Well, we did, uh, how long did we do our podcast? About a year. Gotcha. Give or take. So, yeah, if he doesn't want it, that might be an, an, an option and then if anybody knows anybody who's an audio person, if they have an audio interface that they're no longer using because they've kind of given up doing podcasting or something like that, drop me an email. Well, let's, let's try and find Ben a unit here in Amotu <laughs> if we can before be the end of the year. Wow. I can't believe they're actually officially saying it's going to take until next year. Well, that's what uh, Motu hasn't said that, but that was what Sweetwater said. And I think if Sweetwater's yeah, not going to get them in would, for a year, that's probably the official them. line. Yeah, Sweetwater's probably the biggest music-only distributor out there. I <laughs> mean, obviously, I think Amazon's uh, selling a lot of gear, but as far as a buying gear from a place that has exactly the same prices as Amazon and also salespeople that understand and can explain things to you, yeah, Sweetwater has been my go-to. Pref- it's kind of like Newegg. It's like Newegg versus <laughs> Amazon. You can find most things in both places, and you can the pricing is very comparable. But with Newegg, you have much more techie reviews, and if you actually call them up and you ask questions, they have people that understand technology. Yeah. Amazon, what you see is what you get. Well, am- when was the last time you were able to get anyone on Amazon on? on a call, even for customer service. Actually, uh, I've done that a number of times and uh, it's not that hard. They are in India, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the last time I had to call Amazon was when they didn't deliver a package to me and I used the online facilities to let them know, hey, you guys dropped it off at the wrong address. You can see at mm-hmm. the photo of the door. That it's not has, my door. It's yep. not my door. It's not my welcome mat. That is somebody else's guys, and they were apologetic. They they did, but they weren't able to reship. They they were only able to do a refund, and the product was now backordered. Mm. So I'm like, well, screw that. That was memory for computer. Uh, right before the big memory price hike. So I'm like, well, that's no good. So I just walked around my whole neighborhood until I found the house they delivered it to, <laughs> and so then I, the I'm sure somebody thought I was a porch thief. Yeah, because porch I'm pirate. walking around looking at. Oh, here's a package. I'll grab it real quick and walk away. And then everyone in my neighborhood has uh, the uh, ring doorbell, the ring doorbell, literally everybody. And so the whole place is monitored like crazy and including people that don't even live here. Like I I had a food delivery across the street to my neighbor that used to, or the house Mm -hmm. that used to be a guy now lives in Houston. Mm -hmm. And so I walked over and grabbed my food. And as I walked away, I got a phone call and it was him from Houston saying, Hey, I saw you walk by my house. 
<laughs> he I'm still like, had the yeah he's still in houston yeah. he's like yep still in houston renting the place out but i still yeah. monitored doorbell oh god see the the whole concept of the ring doorbells it mm-hmm. just especially with the the police integrations that they've pushed mm-hmm. for and things like that it, it's insanity to me i you know i've had cameras on my house and things like that but mm-hmm. i control them i own them i own the access to them and I can promise you, unless it's because someone broke into my house, I'm never giving that to law enforcement versus now, you know, people are just passively giving connections to these devices to to police. And that's that's insidious in my mind. Yeah, I uh, I totally understand the point and uh, to a large extent agree with that. However... The view of the front of my house, which already has three of my neighbor's rings pointed at my house, and this Mm -hmm. is a view pointing away from my house, does not add sufficient risk or anything else to me. So I'd I'd rather have the convenience. That's fine. I'm just saying I wish at the very least. If I lived on a five-acre lot where you couldn't see my house, I would probably not have a ring. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just wish it was an opt-in to sharing that information with the police versus essentially yeah, closer to an opt-out. Well, I mean, they were they even started doing things like sharing the Ring's Wi-Fi network, which mm-hmm. is like, hold up. I never agreed to this. You can't be using my internet for other devices. Well, come on. It's just convenience. It's like having yeah. an Alexa in your house. It's... I have three of those. Man, I, there's, you know, there's one I, in every I, place in the house. I, I got a Google uh, Home Mini or whatever given mm-hmm. to me for whatever reason. And now, Google, I would not trust. Yeah. After just looking at the amount of traffic constantly going out of that, even with the mic switched off, that, that stayed plugged in less than 24 hours. So, oh, yeah. You yeah, actually I, plugged it in? Yeah. For testing. Hmm. While okay. I was by myself and no one else was home and I just Those things wanted to see what traffic was going through. Super efficiently. Like whatever we talk about on, as we're recording here right now, mm-hmm. I will literally get ads for it in the next 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> and, and the ads are not on, I'm a, they're not on the Amazon website. They're, I'm sure they're coming through being sold by Amazon, but the ads will be in Google. Interesting. Oh, it's instant. The the video recommendations on YouTube that I will see in the next hour to two hours are directly related to stuff that I talk about with you. Is it related to what you talk about with me or the previous well, anybody, videos that you anybody. watched that you no, then no, talk no. To I me mean, about? not at all. I mean, some some weird topic will come up, like blending lemons completely, skin and everything, and making a nice uh, smoothie out of it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I'll start getting recommendations on YouTube of videos for, hey, have you looked at people blending lemons? <laughs> oh, no. It's it's absolutely listening to the conversation. There's no two ways about it. Big Brother's here. Well, but Big Brother's I, I really, here I don't mind. here to stay. Oh, absolutely. But I'm doing this consciously knowing that I've got a Big Brother living in the house. Well, I have other people living in the house that are not as conscious as they should be sure. on what's going on in the world. So, you yeah, know, when, yeah. and when, I do, when teenagers, uh, this is one thing that I, can you imagine <laughs> if we were teenagers oh my today? God. 
Oh my and God. Not being able to forget the stupid shit we did yeah, and not letting like, it die. Oh, like finding a stash of playboys out in the woods somewhere and shooting BBs everywhere and doing all kinds of stuff that kids used to do back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anyway, it's just, I, I do not envy children growing up today. Yeah, they, in some ways, they're forced to become a lot more mature quickly, but at the same time, their childhood is extended by a decade. Yeah, I, I think they're it's more infantilized thing. because they don't go through some of those trying things because right. they're not, because they're too timid to risk doing That's something that, 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 that in the ways infantilizes them. Speaking of kids, man, we, so we normally record this show on Saturday mornings, but yep. I had some family come in, so we're recording it on Sunday afternoon. And yeah, so there was a shooting yesterday in Buffalo. Have you been yeah, watching I saw, that? Uh, well, I, I actually haven't seen much, but I've heard a few blurbs about it. I don't really watch mainstream, and that's mostly who's been talking about it. Yeah, um, so at this point, there's 10 people dead, three injured. Yeah. It was a white guy who drove several hundred miles to apparently go shoot up Buffalo, New York, for some racial reason is what everyone's is blaming Buffalo it on. Is a black city? I was unaware of this, but apparently the neighborhood he was in... You know, I, I, Buffalo, New York has never struck me as a super, you know, ethnic yeah. city by any stretch. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have thought of it that way, but it's definitely being portrayed that way. And mm. the people talking about white fragility and everything mm. else are all coming out of the woodwork. And uh, apparently there's a manifesto. Apparently there is there was a Twitch live stream, which has since been taken down. Someone said to me earlier that Citizen Free Press had the live stream, so I haven't gotten to go look at that. But, you know, most people will never see that. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Also, they're making a very big, uh, you know, like 20 year old or or is this like an older 18 year old? Okay. Okay. So it is. Yeah. And they're making a really big deal about a him being able to go get the guns that he had and so on. And then B, the tactical gear he was using, he was wearing body armor and so on. So that'll be interesting to see. Let's go through the gear. What kind of guns do they think or they say he was using? From what I've seen reported right now is AR-15. Okay. So the most popular rifle in the United States. Exactly. Got it. (laughs) And body armor, was this like a tactical vest or what? So I have not seen the okay. the pictures of him, but they the news media, including Fox News today, was reporting it as body armor. So that, that's interesting. A whole slew of things, and probably not actual body armor. Well, one 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 website said tactical gear. I mean, that could be a chest rig, yeah. right? Running multiple yeah. mags. He's and probably so running, on. you know, tactical vest with a, a Molly system on it, and yeah. maybe or maybe not. A plate inside, uh, maybe soft body armor, which is a lot cheaper and more common. Well, and so what? You know, body armor yeah. is body armor it's is LARPing. very it's larping. Well, well, here's the thing: body armor is effective if you have access to high quality trauma medicine. Otherwise, you know, in like the zombie apocalypse, I'm not yeah. wearing body armor. It weighs me down. I'd rather carry yeah, yeah, more yeah. ammo. So, right, right. The best kind of body armor is made of lead. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, prevents, so it's it's uh, gonna be interesting radiation to, damage too. It's gonna well, time <laughs> distance and shielding gene. Sufficient lead. Yeah. It, it's gonna be interesting to see what is made out of this. Oh, I'm sure it'll be a big anti gun 
thing. Well, we need to ban the, guns. Look at what happens when you know white people go and shoot up everybody. Well, and they're really pushing the race angle on this one hard. I sent you a video earlier. You'll you'll get to uh-huh. watch and see what I'm yeah. talking about. But uh, you know, Robin D'Angelo and others have already started commenting. So, Ugh. what a waste of human skin. Yes, in many ways. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, how's it different though? It always happens. There are about ten times as many non-white ethnic people that commit murder, but yet there's never a, a story about it. And then some idiot kid, probably with mental problems, probably prescription drug taker, goes on a crazy rampage, and that's all that people can talk about for a month. Well, you know, regardless. People got shot in... Oh, how many people got murdered in Chicago? I'll bet you it was over 10 in the last week. Oh, easily. Yeah. It might have been we 10 can in probably the last look day. It up, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if the stats are updated quite that recently, but I know when I talked to Darren, you know, the, the murder rate in Chicago has doubled from the previous year. Well, I mean, the, significance, was already high. the significance they're making of this is just that, you know, there are 10 pe- thir- 13 people, 13 casualties, 10 dead. In one incident. Mm-hmm. Okay. All I can say is it, it's always shocking to me when stuff like Aurora happens and this happens, how to me low that body count number actually is. Because yeah, everyone's a if, crappy if shot. you're, if you're in a target rich environment, like a movie theater, it's oh fairly full. Yeah, the weapon only... doesn't matter. A 1022, no. you know, no. Anyway, if you're in a target-rich environment and you're psycho enough to just want to go and kill people, not caring if you get killed, why well, would you use anything other than a shotgun? Or a bomb. Well, yes. But, you know, I mean, let's, let's say these, these kids actually want to aim at people, not just push a button. Well, perhaps it is what you already just said, that it's LARPing. Right, that they are... I, that's, that's kind of my point. And yeah. this, is, this has to do with the way that it's dressed as well. Because if your goal is to simply kill a bunch of people, you bring a couple of boxes of shotgun ammo, of buckshot, and a shotgun, and that's it. And you don't need any second weapons or, you know, third weapons. You don't need much of anything else. Especially if you have a tactical shotgun with mags that you can swap out. Yeah. Well, that, yes, for sure. But even if you don't, I mean... Reloading is pretty quick on shotguns, if you know what you're doing. Well, it depends. I would argue that, like, if you're using a Mossberg 870, your fingers, you got to watch that finger, you know. But, you know, or Mossberg, a Remington 870 versus a Mossberg 500. A Mossberg 500, you can reload pretty easy and quick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I was going to talk about the two shotguns and mess them up there for a second. Sorry about that. Noob. No, um, not a noob. Just, you know, you're going to say one thing while thinking about the next thing you're sure, going to say, and you end sure. up saying both. Yeah. I, you know, it's if you're going to use a rifle, obviously, the, the, the problem with the rifle is that even though you can have more rounds in the magazine, is that with adrenaline pumping the way it would be in a live mm-hmm. fire scenario, you're going to miss a lot more. And we've had incidents over the years. I remember watching one video of a New York police takedown of a shooter where the there was a 
aggregate total of 162 rounds fired by the police <clears throat> and no hit on the perp. Yeah, well, you know, this is one thing that is shocking to me, but when you look at, you know, the way tactics are designed, you know, body mass shots, mm-hmm. the average ground pounder, the average, and this is no offense to anyone, I'm just saying, average in- infantryman and average cop on duty are not the best shots in the world, no. believe it or not. Well, they hardly practice. I mean, most police departments give you two boxes a year and anything else you have to pay for yourself. And so that's, you're lucky if the cop spends two boxes a year on practice ammo. Well, I mean, it varies from department to department, but even then the, what they train and what their qualification numbers are on is, you know, center mass shots and, Mm -hmm. you know, fairly short ranges. Whereas if you're a hunter and, you know, you're, shooting at a deer for instance you know you're like you're, you're killed. a deer hunter or something yeah well you, you, I, all right i'm i'm giving a specific example here but you know a deer kill box where the target you want to hit is about mm-hmm. eight inches in size is really what you're wanting to hit for an optimal kill for a side shot yeah for and, a fast kill so the animal doesn't yes, suffer exactly that's your optimum target zone and you know in texas most hunters shoot under a hundred yards, but in the Northwest where I lived for a long time, you know, a two, 300 yard shot was not uncommon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that's a much smaller target than center of mass or body mass on a, you know, six foot guy at that range. So it's just a substantial difference. So Mm -hmm. not that we want to make, you know, people more efficient at these things. Well, yeah, exactly. Let's let's caveat that with the, what we're just talking about, how bad a shot just the average person is not not suggesting that people that are crazy enough to be mass murderers should get better. Well, and, you know, I, I'll say this. I, I can think uh, I, I, I'm a pretty decent shot. So I sit there and I look at some of these statistics and I go, I can't believe they didn't do better. But at the same right. time, you know what? I've never shot at a human being, so I don't know what my reaction right. would be. So, hmm. well, have you done, have you done any kill house scenarios? Paintball. Yeah. Okay. So paint, that's close enough. I, anything that gets adrenaline going. <clears throat> so I've done simulation. I've done, I used to play paintball pretty regularly, but I've done kill houses with simulation and it's, it is amazing how much worse I shoot Yeah. in that scenario than when I'm shooting at paper targets in a straight line at the range. Well, of course, one, you're in motion and everything else, but you know, and, the first, and the, my the, hand does not stay steady at all. It's yeah. just, he wants to move a lot more. You're thinking just move over like a quarter inch and your hands like whoosh. Yeah. So the first, the first kill house thing I ever did was put on by an army ranger and a green beret and they set it up and it was with paintball mm-hmm. and I was seven or eight years old and i was supposed to be the hostage i was gonna guess 14 but okay no seven or eight years old and i was the hostage Mm -hmm. and everybody's gotten shot and everybody's down the room's clear i stand up and one gung-ho motherfucker comes in at the last second and shoots (laughs) me (laughs) oh (laughs) and yeah it was just like uh, okay fail Mm -hmm. fail dude but yeah i had an interesting childhood gene yeah, no, I, I I believe you. 
that, that sounds very fun. So it's a testament to your parents, I think. And and I think if every kid went through doing a kill house when they were young, they would have a a much better appreciation for guns. B would want to be gun owners a lot earlier in life. And I guess that's the other point to bring up here is so if we look at it not from a racism standpoint or the oh my god guns kill people standpoint but a self-defense standpoint why wasn't anybody in this crowd shooting back and taking this guy out sooner because it's new york state well i knew new york city has crappy laws is the whole state have uh crappy gun laws New York City runs New York State, so they don't have as crappy a laws, but mm-hmm. my understanding is New York State has fairly strict gun control. New York I, could is, be wrong I mean, on there's that. a lot of forests and just kind of, you know, not cityscape in New York State. Yes, and New York State is one of those states that should be broken into a couple pieces and everybody be very happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will I always thought the best thing that could happen is if the water level goes up by about 18 feet or so. And just flood uh, all of Long Island? Just the parts that we don't need. What parts do we need is a better question. The parts with forests and stuff. Forests and farmland. (laughs) The the coastal areas tend to attract the wrong kind of people. Well, you know, the coastal areas attract everybody. Most civilization is on the coast, so... Like I said, the wrong kind of people. <laughs> Indeed. You know, mm-hmm. I, I will say that as much as I loved loved growing up on the Gulf Coast, I, I do prefer the wilderness to an extent just because of the isolation. Mm-hmm. See, this is this is another another tautology that seems to exist, is that the nicer the land, the better the climate, the the more left-leaning the people there. And... Well, the easier the life, right? Yeah, the the easier the life. Yeah. You know, when I was in in San Diego, I had clients out there. It is absolutely perfect. It's beautiful. It's never too hot. It's never too cold. There's always a slight breeze from the ocean. You got, you know, a, a coastline that runs... From north to south, there's tons of beaches, there's tons of uh, water activities. And you're literally only about an hour away from a hot desert if you really want to go in the opposite direction. And only about two and a half hours away from getting up in the mountains where the weather is a lot cooler. Hmm. So it's a great location, but it's full of Californians. Californians are a problem. Californians are a problem for everyone. Well, they're especially here in Texas, you know, if uh, Beto gets even close, it's going to be because of Californians moving in. By the way. No, that's uh, totally true. And they tend to bring their politics with them. But where I was going with this whole thing is what you described, which is you like the forest, but you like growing up next to water. It kind of describes Minnesota, where you have water no further than a mile from any place on land. You're never more than a mile away from a lake. But you have the, the entire north of the state, I say north two-thirds of the state, is just deep forest. Yeah, The but, southern third of the state is farmland, for sure. But that's fresh water. Oh, yeah, it's fresh water. But water 
is much better than no water. This is why I couldn't live in like in Colorado. Mm. Is that yes, it has some streams, but that is very different from lakes. And I think lakes are a lot closer to uh, coastal water in terms of the variety of critters that live there, the stuff that you can fish there, the amount of bio biodiversity. Know, yeah, no, it's not even just diversity; it's just the bio creation that's happening. Because uh, streams, by their nature of constantly moving and aerating the water, also take out a lot of the bacteria, and so it's, that's why you're much better drinking from a stream than you are from a lake. But that bacteria is what creates a lot of the food products that all the fish and everybody else eats. Yeah, but, you know, nothing fights like saltwater fish. Oh, I, I haven't ever caught a bass or a steelhead or anything else. Dude, that is a bass f- is a joke fish. I mean, this is why I, it's so funny to me that people consider bass some kind of a like a tournament fish. A, a bass is a fish that literally wants to not even be in water. It jumps out of the water at first opportunity to make it much easier for you to. Uh, you know, all I can say is a big red fish is is about as good of a fight as you're going to get. So, oh, well, ocean fish, obviously. I mean, dude, tuna, yeah, swordfish. Like eh. I, I've I've fought with swordfish over an hour. Yeah, swordfish though. I just don't like eating them. Too wormy. Well, I you know a lot of a lot of people say that. I and I. It's not that I dislike eating them there, but I like eating red snapper the most. That's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Oh, fish. yeah. Well, any of the snapper. Uh, so tasty, know. but especially the red one. It's just so tasty, man. Well, and, and grouper. Grouper, too. You know, a big. Yeah. Although I know, think grouper is smart. I don't like killing grouper. Well, have you ever seen the Goliath grouper? Yeah. Yeah. They're they're cool. They eat sharks, don't they? No, they're not that big, but they're they're uh, a big damn fish. I think they do. I think they 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 eat like baby sharks. Okay. Well, their, they, a, a fish will eat anything that it's small enough well, that it can yeah. eat, let's be yeah. honest. But so. they just seem very curious and friendly. And that goes a long way. Yeah, fish aren't very smart, Gene. Well, they're you know, some fish are smarter than others. There there's definitely a continuum there you can't just say all fish are stupid i have the i had fish tanks for quite a while and there are definitely smart fish out there there are smarter fish but when we're comparing them to you know a porpoise or something like that or even an octopus you know oh octopus is like different level person as far as i'm concerned yeah no octopus octopus octopi are they are incredible aliens Indeed. They crash landed here many, many millions of years ago. And <laughs> you know, that is, that is a distinct possibility. Three hearts, copper-based blood instead of iron, a brain that's the shape of a donut that goes around their stomach, and uh, limbs that can taste and feel, not just touch and pick up, and also contain more neurons than our hands and fingers do. So they're pretty incredible Critters. Always been partial to. I, that's one of the animals I won't eat. I, I don't eat certain smart animals. Huh. I You know, I didn't realize that the copper, that the octopus had a copper hemoglobin. Yep. That is interesting. So it, it it's, yeah. So, so they're Vulcan. They are Vulcan. I, I, I kind of figured that's where you were going. With that. <laughs> Exactly, they're for, more closely related to Vulcans. Yeah, yeah. So for those who who don't know, Spock on 
TOS Vulcan and it on TOS they talked about him having green blood because yep. he had a copper hemoglobin. Right. That, anyway, that's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. No, they're they're interesting. I, I in general I I like squid as well, but octopus in particular, they're the most friendly and interesting. One of the characteristics Well, they're curious. They, they're curious. They they, they, yeah. they exhibit a lot of curiosity and problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. Great at problem solving. But here's one of the characteristics that sort of separates them from most other marine life the, who are not mammals is that they play. And they've done experiments, and you can watch them on YouTube, with octopus to test their interaction with toys. And what they've done is put something that like half floats in the water. So it's got a little bit of air in it mm-hmm. and the aquarium has a a you know water recirculation system so it's got some water movement happening in it mm-hmm. and after putting the octopus in the tank and and it's started you know looking around and got used to it it started playing with this thing by basically using its siphon to push it into the jet stream and then having it go all the way around the tank come back to the octopus so he's not moving and he's grabbing it and then moves it next to his siphon and then produces his siphon to squish it into the stream that's flowing mm-hmm. and then that goes around the whole circle again. So it's, there's no point to this activity. It, it's, it literally is a purposeless, purposeless activity just to pass the time and he could have just picked up the thing, looked at it and then you know let go of it but he was literally playing. And they've well, done this, I think they did it with 20 octopus and 16 out of the 20 ended up playing with this thing. I mean, it's crazy how old and deep the play circuit is, you know. Oh, it's yeah. In well, it, 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 is, it is a simulation circuit and it's supposed to simulate experiences that may be dangerous in our youth so that we can learn from that simulation before it happens for real. Well, it, it's somewhat the basis of thought, you know, because thought provides something very similar. Because if you think you can spin mm-hmm. out, you know, copies of yourself and play through a, a you know thought experiment. And, you know, I don't know about you, but generally, if I'm going to be in a heated argument with someone, I try to strong man their argument and figure it out before I get there. Mm-hmm. So. I usually just point out all the the logical errors in their argument and hope they give up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, it, it's the it, there's there's been studies done on on that as well, like athletes who visualize hitting baseballs or shooting three-pointers. They have a marked improvement over the control group who isn't doing that where neither one of the group are actually practicing for real. So they're basically taking people that are away from their ability to practice. Half the group is Mm -hmm. doing imaginary practice. The other group is just watching TV or YouTube or whatever, Instagram. And the ones that were doing imaginary practice have a a marked difference in their performance versus the control group. Interesting. So do you think that that's that's what uh, NATO is doing right now is imaginary practice? I think NATO's committing suicide, <laughs> but I, I, I had to figure out a good segue. No, a good, a good segue to uh, it. Yeah, so, Dan, I hear I thought we were going to skip the whole damn topic this whole episode. 
Well, if you want, we can. No, no, no. I'm kidding. We can, I mean, we can uh, the reports stuff. on, you know, an oligarch who doesn't really have good ties to Putin being, quote unquote, secret, secretly recorded saying that he has blood cancer seems mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I, I said the other day, the watching the full, not the clip version, but the full version of the Victory Day parade in Russia and Moscow. And seeing Putin, Lavrov, and a bunch of these other people walking about half a mile from the parade stage to the eternal flame, I would be out of breath and like trying to keep up with these people. Hmm. I don't think anybody with cancer of any kind is going to be doing that walk. They're going to have a car drive them between the two locations. Now, granted, half a mile is not a huge amount. It's probably just under a kilometer. It's not a huge distance, but it's more than most Americans walk per day. You know, I would make the joke that I'd like to see Biden do that, but he'd get lost. <laughs> yes, he'd do a circle. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, I don't think he could walk in a straight line. So and he'd certainly we, be shaking hands with, you know, mythical invisible In people. the air, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting to me that they are pushing this narrative, you know, citing a source that might as well be sources familiar with the matter. You know, I I, I just don't know how to parse that and why they're pushing this health angle so much. Is it to prep an assassination attempt? Yeah, I think they're going to poison them. I think that's the plan is they're going to have somebody try and poison them. And, you know, then who takes over Russia and how does that go? So that, that's well, the that's the big there. question. I don't know. One of the one of the reasons that Putin himself is actually mentioned when asked, "Why have you not just retired and enjoyed life and play with your grandkids?" and you know, "Why do you want to keep running to to be mm-hmm. in this office for so long?" And his point was that. You know, I, I haven't finished the work that is necessary to be done for Russia. And there's no one that I've been like grooming or waiting in the wings to take over. So I need to finish this before I leave. And, and what do you think that work is? Like, what has Putin articulated publicly as his goals? So his for Russia, it's really to restore the national identity that was, in a lot of ways, lost during the Russian Revolution 100 years ago, somewhat gained back during World War II, and then lost again with dissolution of the USSR. And that is to remind people of Russia that Russia was the biggest empire for the longest period of time. The British Empire was bigger for a certain period of time, but nowhere near as long as the Russian Empire. So, And that, that this is where I think a lot of these American politicians extrapolate that he just wants to reunify the USSR. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very two-dimensional perspective on what his desire is. It well, is not about territory. It is about a culture and an attitude that most Americans would absolutely understand. You know, American, America number one, yeah. the, the, you know, the big finger on, in football games, right? It's your team number one. Phone finger number one. Exactly. And that's, that's really what it is yeah. uh, that he's trying to do was to guide Russia from 
the the fall of the Soviet Union, which everybody, him included, thinks was absolutely necessary because the country was being stifled. Its progress, its growth, its science, its industry were all being stifled by this completely asinine communist system. Uh, a lot of people like to point out, well, wait a minute, well, he was part of the problem. He was a KGB agent. Yeah, he was a KGB agent for sure, but he wasn't a communist. He, he was not a, you know. You don't think he was a member of the Communist Party? You have to because be I a don't member think of the Communist Party. I was well, a member of the Communist Party. Everybody's okay. a member of the Communist Party if you want to get somewhere. Exactly. So, Absolutely. But not a true but, believer is what you're saying. Yeah, and I think that's the case in China for a lot of people as well. They're members of the party, even though they're, you know, they're about as capitalist as you get. And and so for Putin, it wasn't. So you got to you got to make a separation between like loyalty to the party and loyalty to the country. Like, are you loyal to the Republican Party or are you loyal to the United States of America? Well, let me say it differently. I have often said that this is my country and I love it, but this is not my government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, if you happen to be working in the CIA for that government, you'd have a harder time saying that. Indeed. Yeah. And so uh, Putin was in the, in the KGB in his 20s. He was a fairly young guy at the time. He, he grew up in a, a very lower middle class family. He was, you know, he still is somewhat small in stature. He probably weighed about 130 pounds. So he took up jiu-jitsu as a teenager and he in St. Petersburg. And I think it was actually that that ultimately led to him being becoming a part of the KGB. And I don't mean like abilities. I mean like through connections, connections through the gym that he yeah. was in, through the tournaments and that he went on. So one of the things that shocked me was to learn that Russia fairly recently before going into Ukraine had talked about a European defense pact. And I, I found a video of mm -hmm. Lavrov talking about this and it's something that I hadn't even heard about, but they had mm -hmm. proposed a European defense pact, which would, while them not joining NATO would have been similar to the NATO article, article, five yeah. or two, whatever agreement yeah. it is, an attack on one is an attack against all, which would have seemed to be a very strong move against China Yep, that the West absolutely ignored. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with that agreement at all? Because I haven't been able yeah, to find it. Yeah, not a text. whole lot more than you, though, but I remember when it came out, they were talking about it on Russian TV. And the, the idea has actually been around for quite a while, which is a post- Soviet and you know pro Western Europe mm -hmm. European pact that that covers Europe from Portugal to the Urals. So it includes Russia, Ukraine, you know, all of the European countries. And the idea being for a, a mutual, you know, protection of Europe against the elements which at the time and this this conversation probably started you know 15 years ago really. The biggest threat that the world was seeing was coming from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And not, well, terrorism, from, yeah. not really terrorism. <laughs> China, I've talked about before, Russia has basically been 
untrusting and suspicious and not particularly friendly with China uh, ever since the mid 60s. I mean, like well, for a long period of time, it was a well-known fact that uh, about a, a third of Russia's nuclear arsenal was not pointing at New York or, or Washington, D.C. It was pointing at Beijing because there were, they, Russia felt that the threat of invasion or some kind of hostile action coming from China was much higher than what the West thought it was. Yeah, and you know, it just struck me because it's a very interesting thing because I, I don't remember hearing in the Western media really anything about this proposal. So the mm -hmm. fact that this proposal was even made, and it would have included Ukraine, by the way, and Absolutely. it would have been it, yeah. it would have been a way of it would have been a way of Moscow securing its border and not seeing NATO as hostile because then they would have agreements right. even with NATO countries that hey you know they, they essentially would have a mutual defense pact, yeah. and I'm wondering if the reason why we didn't see any of that really is because of you know well, on, there, on our there's last a show. country that wouldn't have been a part of that obviously and that's the united states okay but we would still have nato as part of that so well but it's it's a challenge it's a competitor to nato the, the thing that for some well, reason what, you know people the, seem to den deny about nato that is very obvious if you look at the history of nato and even the question of why does nato exist today is NATO was created as a response to the communist expansion happening in Eastern Europe. Yeah, That's, absolutely. It was, a, it was a creation of the United States alone, really, and then pulling into all the countries that they helped during World War II and saying, you have to join this. Well, it, it, I mean, there, there were several things, but I mean, I my history books include you know, post fall of uh, the USSR mm -hmm. talks about Russia joining NATO. Right. Putin had that conversation. It's a famous conversation with Clinton where mm -hmm. he asked Clinton, you know, what, what do you think uh, would be the process for us becoming a part of NATO? And Clinton, according to Putin, just sort of laughed and said, well, I think it's a little early to talk about that. And I wonder why, though. I mean, it, it seems to me that if you had right post, and it really should have been even with Bush, but right post follow USSR, mm -hmm. why not bring Russia and any former Warsaw Pact countries into NATO immediately if they are willing to do so? And well, you can't share your secrets with people that were your enemies just a year ago. Are you kidding? That's well, that's a very, very anti-secret, you know. Well, uh, first of all, I don't think NATO's sharing a whole lot of secrets. Well, weaponry. You know? I mean, NATO's, the biggest thing with NATO okay. is it's a, it's a supermarket, right? It's a U.S. supermarket for military gear. Yeah, to an extent. You know, there are still different fighters flown and so on. It's, we're going to use a common cartridge. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Mm -hmm. the, the, there, there are some commonalities, but none of it is you know, military tactics, battle plans, things like that. Well, if you're no longer planning on attacking each other, then what the hell difference does it make? And if someone yeah. ends up being a bad actor, the odds of all of the countries at that point in time that you're pulling in being a bad actor is minuscule. But anyway, I just think it would have been I'm not a saying huge that was olive right branch I'm, to I'm Russia just, at the time. Yes, absolutely. And But Welcome America them. just won the war with Russia. 
they didn't get to a draw with Russia. They beat Russia. They they won the battle. They won the war because the country broke up. But the Cold War was not against Russia. It was against communism. That's the point that everyone seems to be missing. Exactly so, right. So the Cold War was not about Russia. It was about communism. And quite frankly, we have not won that war yet. You know, there, there are still communist nations in the world today. Yeah. So to me, it seems to me, if someone has thrown off a regime that was your enemy and the people right. say, hey, sorry about that, but we corrected it as soon as we could. Yeah. Why would you not welcome them into Europe, welcome them into the greater world stage and say, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. brother, now let's focus against, you know, at the, especially at the time, yeah. fairly well, communist, I, still China. I'm playing a little bit of a devil's advocate here, obviously, because I don't agree with those positions, but I understand where they came from. And I think, I think what you're talking about is the optimist view of the fall of communism and what most people in the Pentagon and State Department had was the pessimist view of the fall of communism, which is, yes, on the surface, we're battling communism. But really what we're doing is we're battling for the dominance of the economy of the world. We need to be in control of that, and that just happened. And you don't take the guy that lost and you put your hand out and pull him back up to stand next to you. When See, that guy lost, you leave him on the ground, and you take your glory. Again, I'm not saying this is so, my thought. So, I'm just saying this is what I believe people in the Pentagon and State Department were thinking back in the 1990s. Yeah, but my point of view on that is if you're a gracious winner, you can create an ally Whereas if you kick someone while they're down and go, ha, look at what yeah. I just did to you, you're setting yourself up for a revenge plot. Haven't we seen this in every movie ever? Of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think they were, people were very self-assured that it took them 60 years, but they finally broke communism down. And the other thing about it is they, they miscalculated the threat of China. Because had they realized the threat of China and the growth of China that was happening it would have been much better strategically to have Russia be in NATO because then NATO would literally stretch all the way around the Arctic Circle from Alaska through Russia through Europe yep, and, and all the way down to the border of China. China would be the one that would be bitching about the fact that what's not fair that NATO's on our doorstep. Yeah, I, but, I tend to agree. But it's the same mentality right now. You know, we're, we're 20 plus years, we're 30 years since that, that thing was happening with the breakup of the Soviet Union and the opportunity to bring Russia in. But people are still thinking the same way. They are pushing Russia and China and India, those three countries, the country that has the most well, resources, the, the country nation. that has the most factories, and the country that has most, you know, the most technological capable workforce. They're pushing those three countries together, and that's literally like shooting yourself in the groin, not even the foot. Yeah, because well, you're again, I don't even future think generations of of Americans from being able to compete with that. I don't think it's just China, Russia, and India. I think it's the full BRICS nations, and you know, well, it, but it, I don't think Brazil and South uh, Africa add a whole lot to that. But sure, 
It could both are actually. So Brazil is very strategic location and, you know, has resources. But anyway, I I, I don't know. I I, I think it's that entire alliance is something that is going to be interesting to see how it plays out. It it is. But Russia, India and China are also right next to each other, too. And they're also the the main players in that. Yes. Yeah. And it just from a, you know, from a people and territory perspective, that is the majority of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you guys doing? How stupid are you that you want to bring those three together? And certainly if you throw Brazil in there, there's a whole shit ton of people and it gives them a foothold on the other continents as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, South Africa, whatever. Well, but, part of the strategic nature of Brazil and South Africa in this is to align strategically across continents, right? Yeah. yeah. Because between China, Russia, and India, and then South Africa and Brazil, you've got one major continent missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before anyone corrects me on my account, I'm just saying Australia and Antarctica, you know, (laughs) not as strategically important in this. Yeah. Well, China's been working on taking over Australia for a while now. Indeed. Indeed. As we heard on our last episode, they're making inroads. Absolutely. But that's kind of my point is that you have a lot of strategic territorial coverage is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So the, the idea of having the Soviet Union fall apart into individual smaller states was the right plan. And this is, this is where I think people just, their continuity breaks down. Because I look at our goal as what you just mentioned for NATO, which I don't think is the real goal of NATO. The real goal was to, you know, to dominate the world by the U.S., and in the process, if that means getting rid of Russia or communism or both, that's fine. But ultimately, that wasn't uh, the communism was not the main goal. Because then, if it was, the NATO should have just shut down the year after the Soviet Union broke down, which it well, obviously did. Communism improve. isn't done. Well, it, it isn't. But then, at least rename NATO. It's a North Atlantic Treaty Organization that, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. It it was set up to fight Russia, but it should yeah. have been set up to fight communism. And, and it, for instance, uh, if NATO was meant to truly fight communism, why would Japan not be a member? Right, right. Why I would mean, if Australia you wanna, if you not be a member? If you want to have the anti-communist alliance, I think they could have gotten a lot more countries to join. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of people dislike communism and because they've seen what it does to governments. And that includes a lot of the dictatorships, like in the Middle East and South America, who saw what communism can do. It'll bring well, in the populist you know, leader, who themselves may become a dictator eventually, but a communist dictator is not the same thing as a capitalist as, dictator. Well, or a the theocratic dictator theocratic in the case dictator, of yeah. like the oh, I, you know, Iranians. I don't know how many so of those guys are actually all that religious in the Middle East. Well, but by at least show. Right. The, sure. the basis sure. of their power yeah. is such. The Ayatollah certainly was. Absolutely. So, it, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what the end game of all this is. Because, you know, one of my goals... Well, we that, know the end game. Well, you know, one of my goals and what I, w- I was I was talking to, to my parents last night and having mm. some conversations. And, you know, we were thinking about what the 
what the exit strategy really is if this Roe mm-hmm. v. Wade decision really takes us to the brink of civil war. And if we okay. see a split up along the states, what does that do? Yeah. And, you know, in unless we go through a peaceful divorce, which I don't think is possible for a no, nation to do. Lincoln I made think sure that, of that. I'm sorry? Lincoln ensured that. Absolutely. And I, I think what we would see is we would see a breakup of the U.S. and a power vacuum that would quickly be filled by China. Mm-hmm. And... That's not a necessarily necessarily acceptable solution either. Not not if you're not China. <laughs> well, that's kind of my point. Yeah. So, as yeah. an American, even though I would love to see an independent Texas, I am very fearful of what 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 getting that would require and what would step in in the United States' place. Yeah, yeah, I think the ununited states. Or the disunited states? I don't know what it would be called by the rest of the world. I think that it absolutely leaves a power vacuum at the top. Now, Russia just doesn't have the population to be the dominant country. They they only had the population while they were the USSR because it included a lot more territories, including some Muslim countries mm-hmm. that where the birth rates are much higher. Plus, the birth rate in Russia today is worse than the birth rate was in Russia during communist times. So as it is in Europe as well, and it has nothing to do with communism or Russia in the United States and the United States is getting there. We're not quite as bad as Europe, but we're getting a lot closer there. People are not having kids. So. You know, if you break it down by years that your family has been here, it's mm-hmm. pretty interesting because yeah, recent immigrants, you know, last couple of generations, their birth rates up there, but, Families that have been here a long time, it's a very different story. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And the I think if if the United States, and this is the dirty little secret, which is why I think we need to have reform and real border controls and real immigration, is that the illegal immigrants that are coming into the United States, which Right now, the estimates I've heard are there's about 35 million people that are in the United States that are undocumented or living with false Social Security cards. So just to put that in perspective, that would be 10% of the population. Right. But that 10% of the population is having an average of three and a half kids. The the kids get automatic citizenship because they're Mm -hmm. born in the country. So... One could make the argument that the the only reason the United States doesn't have the problem that Japan and Europe and Russia have with depopulation is because of the illegal immigrants that are coming over. Well, and let me say this. I think that we need to have a massive reform in our immigration system. As far as I'm concerned, anyone who wants to come here, work, and assimilate into the melting pot culture, I'm great with. You know, that's fantastic. But it has to be that melting pot assimilation. That's the only way a multicultural society works. I think the salad bowl analogy breaks down and fails and you end up you end up in civil war and civil strife. And that's not what I want to see. Absolutely. And one of the factors, and like it or not, that contributed to people wanting to be part of the melting pot and not just stick with their own people 
is the absolutely horrible and abusive descriptions and treatment of new immigrant groups that has always historically happened in the United States. Whether it was the Chinese building the railroads, whether there was the Irish coming over, whether it was the Polish, whoever it was, whatever the new group was coming over, by people that literally were one generation away from being also immigrants, were typically treated pretty, pretty much like crap by the current Americans. And that really makes you make sure that your kids are just Americans. They're not hyphenated Americans. Well, it's, and- it, it's a bullying type mentality, and I get it. A lot of people dislike that. That's why women shouldn't have a vote. But we, <laughs> nonetheless, got uh, to where we are. Sergene.com. <laughs> That's right. We got to where we are by the decisions that were made in the past. There's nobody to blame here other than the decisions that were made by Americans in the past. Well, and, you know, it's one of those things that we often don't judge our past by the times that they, we, we, we look at the past through a modern lens and say, oh, that was wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, given the time and day. So I'm not one for playing moral relativism, but when you look at someone's actions and the lens of what they're doing, you should take into account their frame of reference as part of that. That said... There is a absolute moral understanding that has to evolve, and I don't think we are at the pinnacle of our moral understanding today. But, you know, for instance, a Muslim who doesn't honor killing because of whatever reason, that may be within their own moral ethic. But as someone Mm -hmm. standing outside, I can go, I can understand the frame of reference on why they did that, but it was wrong. And I can judge them on that, especially given, you know, we're in the same time. Now, when someone's dead and you're looking at history, you can judge them. But maybe because you were not living in the same time they were, you didn't have the same moral ethic. Some, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is all I'm saying. That's a good point. Somebody mentioned I I, I put something... That had Arthur C. Clarke in it, who was a mm. great science fiction writer. Yeah, absolutely. And, Childhood and ends. The, great book. Yeah, and the first response was, well, you know he was a pedophile, that the only reason he moved to Sri Lanka because he has a ready supply of of like male kids to fuck out there. I had absolutely no clue of that, but okay. Well, first of all, who the hell knows if it was true? But mm-hmm. my response was like, you know what? I don't care. Because... I, I'm not in the business of judging dead people. I'm, I'm perfectly happy judging people who are currently alive and their current actions, but I'm not going to go back over and commit this, this fallacy of interpreting somebody's worth and value to society from the past based on the current ethics and standards. Um, you know who else was a pedophile? Alexander the Great. Yeah, and yeah, and you know who wasn't Plato and the pedophile? Socrates. You know who wasn't the pedophile? Hitler. That we know of. That we that we're pretty sure of. Apparently, he did. He was not much into sex in general. So, you know what somebody does based on the norms of the place they live and the time they live in. I'm absolutely not going to be judging well, whether I'm- people had slaves or whether they were slaves. Makes no difference to me compared to the accomplishments that they they had created. 
you know, def- define a pedophile. So my grandfather on my mom's side mm-hmm. married my grandmother and they had kids before she was 17. Yeah. There you go. So pedophile now, right there. You got well, a history, a family pattern of pedophilia. No, no, no. Because no, this is in the South. In, I'm trying to know, make a joke. It's, it's, I, no, no. I got you. I got you. But my point yeah. is there is a cultural relativism there. This is yeah. th- this is going back. You have to remember that, you know, my parents are older and, uh, you know, th- this is exactly. this is pre-World War II. Yeah. And, and I think that there's the, the whole concept uh, of, I think, pedophilia in the United States is is vastly different than other countries and we we cannot assume that we are correct on our standing that 18 is the point at which somebody becomes an adult because many Americans are not adults at 24 yeah i i agree but i agree with when we start talking about an 18 year old versus a 17 year old versus you know mm-hmm. but w- when you're talking about it, th- there's a pretty pretty easy line that can be drawn when you're talking about different ages there that I think is absolutely inarguable. So, well, I, I think the percentages absolutely get smaller and smaller the younger you go. But there are many instances in past history of what we would absolutely consider children right now at 13 having to make uh, ends meet to work for themselves to bring family money. They were not children were treated as small adults, not as something special and different. They weren't babies by the time they were thirteen. Well, uh, you but can this goes the, to the infantilization of our youth and well, extending right, right that now. infancy out. Yeah, where which is the, I guess the opposite effect. You could also make the depending on whether you wanted to make it as a a religious argument or just purely a physiological argument that the determination of when somebody is an adult is been established for millions of years. And that is the point at which the female starts to ovulate. That's when either God intended women to start having children. If you want to go that route, or that's when evolution determined was optimal for starting to have children. Well, that or you can look not at neuroscience. You can look at neuroscience and say that a 24-year-old adult male is just now becoming an adult, right? Because the, neuro, the neuroscience is the brain development's finally wrapping up at that point. But an adult is not somebody that is wrapping up development. An adult is somebody that can be self-sufficient. <laughs> so again, <laughs> you know, in today's era... The you know the whole failure yeah, to launch like thing 30s, is, a, is a big deal. Absolutely, for some for some people, absolutely. You know, I I have a a guy I knew in college who he's he you know he never he he's always been dependent, and he, he this is by no means someone who has a, a mental deficiency or mm-hmm. inability. It's just a lack of responsibility and drive to really truly be independent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there, there are plenty of people like that we've got examples of. So my only point is that if the point at which you were expected to become self-sufficient and to act like an adult mm-hmm. 300 years ago was very different than today. or 15, it certainly wasn't 18. Nobody waited until they were 18. You know, women could get married, have children 
13, 14, 15, boys turned, were seen as men. They were both enlisted in armies. They were brought on as apprentices. And before everyone went to college, like Lemming, the apprenticeship was the best way to get a, an understanding of a career, to, to get into a field, into a guild of that particular type of work. So you entered that apprenticeship absolutely in your early teens, not in your late teens or early 20s. By the time you were in your, in your 20s, you should be bouncing five, six-year-olds on your knee. Uh, and by the time you're in your, in your mid-30s, well, you know, your kids have left the house. So there's a little bit of a difference there for men and women. So historically, you know, women got married fairly young, but a man Mm -hmm. would generally wait until he was older to establish himself and then get a bride. So you had the age disparity between the man and the woman very commonly, you know, usually the the woman was much younger. Yeah. And the man, the woman is given her worth. And I, I, again, I'm, I'm sure I would get letters for this if anyone actually listens to this. But Gene at but a, a, a woman's worth, historically, is determined by her ability to have children. And if you want to get sexist about it, mostly male children. That a woman that can have more males is worth more money. Yeah, but and, it's, and it's a, not a, like the, the only problem there is that it's the male that determines the sex of the child. Right, for sure. But But the woman determines the the way that the male's testosterone is produced in a lot of ways. Neither here nor there. If you, well, I I think that's a little too minutia of you to worry about there. Well, sure. But there are plenty of men that only produce girls. And when you talk to their wives, you know exactly why. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, do you? Uh, Yeah. Look, I'm old enough to have seen tons of examples of this being the case. So, Uh. Whereas the worth of a man isn't determined by something that is gifted to him by genetics, it's determined by his ability to utilize whatever he was gifted by genetics to build up security for his family. And so it certainly is more likely that it would take a man from 14 till 24, or maybe even later in life, to be at a point where he can support a wife and family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And whereas for the wife, you know, she is ready, not and, saying she has to get married, but she's certainly ready for childbearing at a much earlier age. Well, and again, this is looking back in history and talking about a foregone age, not what exists today. This is in looking any at the last 10 million years versus the last 100 years. Yes. For the 99.9999% of human history. That's been the case. Yeah, I would say the last hundred years is a very good estimation of when that started when to change. When did women get fairly to vote again? Oh, that's right, a hundred years ago. Okay, pretty so, close. Yes, but I'm not even move, talking about that. Again. I'm just talking about the. <laughs> this move is the of biggest society. Hot potato topic that nobody ever wants to talk about. Well, but it's not just that. It's it, it's a bigger move in society because. Your the industrial revolution really started to kick into high gear. You started moving out of the agrarian economic model into the industrial yeah. economic model, and that was a huge shift. You know, most people don't realize that Mississippi pre Civil War was the richest state in the Union because of mm-hmm. ag- agriculture. Yep. Post post Civil War, there was Reconstruction, but 
you know, that was not the only economic factor. And I'll be the first to admit it, that the industrial revolution that came in the decades after really would have pushed Mississippi down the line anyway. Anyway, right. Although the cotton gin helped. Yeah. I mean, the cotton gin. So we can get into this. The, The Civil War was not necessary to end slavery because technology would have done it without that. The fact of the matter is Abraham Lincoln won through a fluke of the Electoral College. The southern states did not like it for a variety of reasons. The North had uh, done a lot to the southern states. You can read John C. Calhoun, South Carolina Expositions and Protest. And Calhoun, by the way, was a vice president of the United States. So this is not a fringe southern view. But the abominable terrorists and everything else drove the South to say no more. We are going back to... And the reason why that's called the Confederacy is because they wanted a return to the Articles of Confederation and a looser style of government at the Federation level. Because, you know, even even the Constitution today, we are if we were abiding by the Constitution of the 1780s, we would be in a drastically different position than we are today because we are meant to be a United States, capital S. So, yeah. Yeah. So one thing somewhat related to that. That was my Southern boy rant. No, I know. I know. You you have that come out. So I always enjoy it. I just give you a room to talk at that point. To hang myself. Not at all. No, I think it's. So one interesting stat I saw recently was that today in 2020, 2022, whatever the hell year this is, the, the number of slaves in the world is greater than it has ever been in the history of the planet. Depending on how they're measuring that metric, I can believe it. As somebody for whom their life choices are made by somebody other than themselves. I mean, so, that could be someone who works for Foxconn, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. If you can't leave your job, but, you know, you still go to work, you go shopping at a store... But you have no option to quit that job and do something else, or you have no option to pick up and leave. Yeah, you're a slave. You're a better treated slave, but you are a slave. Well, and you know, here, here's the interesting thing. Americans like to think in, in that line. Americans like to think that slavery ended with the Civil War in the United States, but that's not mm-hmm. the case. No. You know, have you ever heard the Tennessee Ernie Ford song, 16 Tons? Of course. Yeah, the company but store. But I owe my soul to the company store. That's still happening with farmers right now, especially with the with, farmers. Not just poultry farmers, but, you know, the GMO. You know, Monsanto, oh, yeah, yeah, Monsanto yeah. owning the seeds and everything else. Right, right. In many ways, you your production is completely tied to yeah. that well, there, idea. There have been some positive court cases with Monsanto specifically. Yeah, I mean, well, they, I mean, now it's bare, but back. yes. Yeah. But Monsanto was very bad about seed licensing they, agreements yeah, and they everything They were very else. aggressive. Their their stance was, if if our genetically modified plants germinate seeds that blow across from your neighbor who bought our seeds and or bird somehow end up out as, on your property yeah, and, and somehow we find land it. on your property you owe us money yep and i would i would take that the opposite and say if if your seeds flew over and landed on my property you owe me cleanup fees well yeah except that 
they have the patent and the licensing and everything else, and they're going to argue right. that you were they're illegally illegal, using their goods. They're doing illegal distribution of a patented material. Well, a patent, a, an invasive species that I do not want. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, that tact it has not have been to be taken. Invasive. By it's just like, look, here's something that's free: shareware software. Here's commercial software. I don't want the commercial software. I click on the download button for the free stuff, and instead it downloads Photoshop. Like, I, I didn't try and get Photoshop. I don't want Photoshop. I will delete Photoshop. You can't charge me for having Photoshop on my computer because I got Photoshop not as a result of my choices to get it, but because the prevailing wind was blowing that direction and it got sent to me in error or whatever, and, or by you know, design in error. And what I'll say is what we might constitute as modern-day slavery to the company store or to Monsanto or anything else is drastically different than what was happening in you know previous generations. I will say that. Well, yeah, but, but, but I'm I would say about around the rest of the world, the that slavery, slavery. I'm sorry? When I say slavery, I'm, I mean, I'm not talking about the company store. I'm talking about people that don't have a choice – in their life of what they do, who they do it for, where they live, and and what kind of food they eat. Well, that that uh, is a that is they a may not be working in an agrarian society at the time now, but they may be working in a factory somewhere. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, you know, sweatshops, those sorts of things. Absolutely. Absolutely, China has a huge problem with slavery, or if you don't want to call it a problem, they they have. A huge advantage because they have slavery. The well, Middle North East, Korea. many of those Middle Eastern countries. North yeah, North Korea. Korea, the whole damn country is basically just a big slave farm. But a lot of countries in the Middle East have really what amounts to slavery because they import people from India, from Indonesia, and to do menial work. But once they get there, their uh, passports and all legal documents are taken away, and they are effectively... You know, like their housing is provided for them, but they have no choice who they work for, where they work, how many hours they work, or how much money they're getting. Like all that is just sort of trust us. We'll take care of it. And you can't leave and we'll make sure you can't leave because all your legal documents are taken away. Mm. So this is happening all over the world in Africa. Not only were there more slaves sold by African slavers two other African countries and the Middle East during the same time period as they were also selling them to the Dutch and Indies company and to what eventually would bring slaves to North America. But that only represented about a third of the slave trade. The rest of the slave trade was going east, not west. To a very, very large extent, yes. So people have a very confused view propagated by people that want to present slavery as an American problem and to still to this day talk about some kind of reparations. Reparations what? to who? Every slave in the United States that's been a slave on the plantation died a long time ago. Well, I mean, even if you... So this is one of the things that, you know, I, I like Mo a lot, but I think he's got something wrong when you talk about reparations because... It, it, anyone so here here's the argument okay you think the the civil war was fought just about slavery there's your reparations more dead than any other american war in history mhm mm 
You mean more? I, than I mean said. the uh, not not the price was paid in human blood. What 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 is more valuable than that? Too? No, I know, but a lot more people died in Russia fighting the Germans than died in the U.S. fighting. Americans. I was talking about U.S. wars, Gene. But you not, didn't specify. That's why I said I did. I said U.S. Americans. wars. More people died in the Civil War than any other U.S. war. That. Okay. Yeah. You didn't put the U.S. in there, but okay. We'll go back. Well, to the I meant Don't to. Worry about it. Maybe my microphone <laughs> clipped because I need a better audio. This is, must yeah. be. Must have been the hardware. It was a glitch. It was a glitch. <laughs> Don't get me started on the glitch. But but regardless, you know, the, and I, I think that there has definitely been. So I think Reconstruction actually did more to harm racial tensions than probably just about anything else. And I know that's not going to be a very popular view. But I think if you go back and look at history and you look at... We got to get you set up with a, with an email so people can complain to you directly. I, I have email addresses. I just don't give them out on the show. No, no, no. I mean like a, a Ben at Sergene.com or something. I've got, I've got URLs I can use. I'll throw mm-hmm. something up. But so if you go back and look at so during Reconstruction, during the Reconstruction period, you look at some of the state legislature debates and arguments about monuments to the Confederacy and things like that. Thing, things pre-Confederate daughters going, daughters of the Confederacy going out and doing the big monument push that they did. But mm-hmm. recognition, there's some interesting there's some interesting speeches given by former slaves that are now state representatives and interesting conversations. But, you know, the reality is, while things weren't perfect, you you have stories like Jim Limber Davis, you have lots of different things. Yeah, Tom's Solo Uncle Tom's has... cabin. Uncle Tom's cabin was not the way the South was. Right. That was a fictional account. Right, right. Well, and Thomas Selwell had talks in quite a few different, I haven't read, maybe he's got books about it too, but he certainly has had a number of talks on this topic. And the the way that slavery was described by the winning side in the history annals is vastly different than if you can find actual firsthand accounts. Were there people that were mistreated? Absolutely. That inevitably happens when somebody has complete control over somebody else. Yeah. There are going to be mistakes made. There were lots of things. So, you know, General Forrest, Nathan Bedford Forrest, supposedly the founder of the KKK, which if you look at the KKK during Reconstruction and the KKK, and by the God, a lot of people are just going to roast me over this, I'm sure. but. The KKK, KKK of the 1920s and 30s, very different thing than that of right during Reconstruction. Regardless, not a great organization, not advocating for that, not the point I'm making. But supposedly, Nathan Bedford Forrest was the founder of the KKK. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that he asked for volunteers to go to war with him. And mm-hmm. he said, if you come with me, and we win, I will set you free. And if we do not, you will surely be set free anyway. Mm-hmm. Two years into the Civil War, r- roughly, I, I forget the exact date and someone will roast me for that. But Forrest went to his slaves and said, I, I give you your freedom. Our cause is surely lost. You might as well go now. And they stayed with him. Mm-hmm. Now, you can ascribe that to that's just what they always did and everything else, 
or you can ascribe that to maybe there was a relationship there that we don't understand looking back today. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I've seen in in some accounts, some recordings from the 1920s of people that were still alive during slavery describing their memories of what it was like before the uh, Civil War on the plantations. And a number of the accounts were very positive, and they're talking about how you know well, the the conditions it, that they worked under after the reconstruction were much worse than the conditions they had as slaves well and you have to just you have to disambiguate the average so first of all less than less than i think it's 6% of the south owned slaves at all period and you have mm-hmm. to distinguish between the planters and the average plantation owner so the planters had you know potentially up to thousands of slaves and hundreds of thousands of acres, very large operations. And then like my ancestor, like Candyland. Yeah. So like my ancestor who fought for the Confederacy in Louisiana, he, he was part of the Louisiana Calvary. Um, he had, I think it was five or six slaves at the time. Now five or six slaves and, you know, a couple hundred acre plantation. He was working the field right there with them. It yeah. was not the same thing as the planters, but the right. planters were such a small minority of the population. So, you know, the, the idea of Uncle Tom's cabin is just an asinine one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people will say, I just don't want to think ill of my relatives. Well, I never met them. I have no opinion towards them other than. You know, I have no nostalgic opinion of that. I just don't. Well, other than that, they were fighting for their way of life and freedom. Well, and again, people would argue that, you know, it was over states' rights, states' rights to keep slaves. No, it was also over tariffs and taxation. Mm -hmm. It was over lots and lots of things. It was about the North wanting to prevent the South from importing manufactured goods from Europe because they wanted the South to import it from the North. It was about preventing the North from, especially in at Atlanta, which was a fairly new city at the time, mm-hmm. generating any sort of industry to rival the North. There are lots of things there that was a fairly complicated situation. And I, I would argue that the economic tariffs that were placed on the South did more than anything else. You have to remember, Lincoln was not a real abolitionist in any way, shape, or form. He did not run on an abolitionist platform. He didn't push for abolition when he got into office, he wanted to save the union. And quite frankly, he would have kept slavery to do it. And if you want to make an argument that the South just wanted to keep slavery, okay, all the South had to do was stay the South and not vote to admit any other states. And guess Mm -hmm. what? Slavery Mm -hmm. would have never been abolished except through economic means. The South didn't need to go to war to keep slavery. The North had to go to war to keep the South. And by what I mean by that is that any new states that, you know, were to come into the union would be non-slave states and so on. Well, it takes an act of Congress to admit a new state, and the South had enough people in Congress to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So, again, I... I we can argue this all day long and I know you're not arguing it and I'm going on. A I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a boring topic because you're not going to get a whole lot of arguments from me. I, 
I know just enough about the Civil War to know that it it's not the the thing that was portrayed in in typical public school history books. I've read enough about it. I had a book as a kid of newspapers from the entirety of the Civil War, like a you know shrunk down version of those publications for a number yeah. of areas well, in the South, and it, it it absolutely like anything else the history written by the victor always makes the victor a perfect good guy and the loser absolutely evil. And that's just, that was absolutely not the case in this case. Like it often isn't. Well, yeah. And let me just tie this into a modern topic. And that is whether or not, you know, Roe v. Wade or anything else will trigger the next, the real civil war, because what you had in the civil war was a war between independent nations in many ways. We can argue mm-hmm. the, the, the details about that later, but that was two geographically separate and independent states fighting each other. Yeah. What we would have today, the Mason Dixon line isn't the dividing line. It's likely going to be rural versus urban. And that's mm-hmm. going to be a very different thing and very interesting. Yeah, it's. I don't know if it's going to be as big as you think, or maybe you don't think, as big as some people would make it out to be. I think the media is hyping it by covering all the extreme protests that are going on right there that probably represent less than 1% of the population. I think the majority of Americans already live in states where Roe v. Wade is closely aligned, or no, Roe v. Wade, where abortion laws are more closely aligned to their personal principles. California is always going to have on-demand abortions. In fact, they may change the laws to allow abortions up to the ninth month because that's California. And people that live in California, for the most part, that's what they want. So how how is it that the, the liberals somehow feel that federalism is a bad thing when federalism allows them to have extreme laws that aren't struck down by the courts because if we were more federalist, then each state gets to have more more say in what is state law. Well, the problem you have is that people in one state are not content to allow others in another state to make what they consider to be an immoral mm-hmm. decision, regardless of which direction that is. And you know, I, I was actually talking to my parents about this last night, specifically my mother. She's far more anti-abortion than I am. Because mm-hmm. what I come down to is I am torn between the rights of the mother and the rights of the child. Because you can argue whenever you want when life begins. Let's not argue that. Mm-hmm. But you ha- the mother has a right. Every person has a right to say, I don't want to live for anyone else. I am not, no one should, no one has a right to me. This is, goes into the arguments of why taxation is theft, right? If I am compelled to live for another, that is by the force, I am in some ways a slave. Yeah. So. And I, I always said that if you, if you don't have a, right to terminate the pregnancy, then ultimately it doesn't remove that right completely. It simply removes the right to terminate pregnancy while staying alive yourself. Well, Anybody can commit suicide who's pregnant and terminate the pregnancy. 
Well, yeah, there's that. But if you truly don't want to bring somebody into this world badly enough, you will do that. Well, let me just say this, though. I I think that the mother has a right to self-defense. So if the pregnancy is threatening her own life for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. she has the right to self-defense. That's just a basic human right. What I would even say is in cases of rape where there was not a voluntary pregnancy, there, there was no, oops, birth control failed. It was an actual rape. There was no consent there. Now, there's still the life of the child to consider, but it's one of those things that, man, again, I can't force someone to live. This is where I get to the point of social norms versus government force. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just like gay marriage. Get the hell out of marriage. I, I think winning the the social norms war is the way to do it, not necessarily legality. That mm-hmm. said, after after a baby is viable, I can see no moral justification for or no moral no possible moral argument for terminating the life of the child. Okay. So if you want to terminate the pregnancy take the baby even if the baby has to be in the NICU for a long period of time yeah i guess what your point is 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 the the abortion and termination of the baby's life or simply a removal of the baby from the mother or termination of the pregnancy yeah yeah so, yeah right because you're no longer pregnant if there's no kid inside right exactly yeah and i i mean let's let's not quibble about, well, is technology good enough to do that? Because there's millions of babies saved every year from that are born prematurely. All that. Well, not only that, if we focused on that and every mid to late term abortion, if every Mm -hmm. abortion, every abortion, science took that as an opportunity to at the very least try and refine itself to the survival of the child, we would get better and better at it quicker and quicker. Now, let me play a little devil's advocate though and say, okay, so when when is it considered a child in your eyes? My eyes are what I would say is a legally binding argument. What does that mean? So I, I think I, my personal view, my moral view is different from where I say that the force of government should be imposed. Mm-hmm. Because the force of government is a very, very sticky subject that you have to be careful on your application with because Mm -hmm. I don't want someone using the force of government against me. So I'm very hesitant to do that from a personal viewpoint where I view life as beginning is at conception. Okay. So one cell is enough to make it a life for you. It is an individual set of DNA that is never going to be reproduced again. It is unique. Unless you clone it, sure. And then you have errors in the cloning process. Yeah, yeah, you do, absolutely. That's kind of like twins, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, you are you based off of your genetics and right, lived experience. Right, but are you so. you as a potential? I mean, is it, it? why would I not extend the argument? If you, if you, If we agree that a single cell is a human being, why could I not extend that to two cells, each containing half the DNA also being a human being because it is not unique DNA at that point. It's my DNA and it's the mother's DNA that has yet to combine. Well, it has yet to combine, right? So you're saying the combination of the DNA is what makes a human. 
it becomes a unique thing. So you could take the two same cells, introduce yeah. them, and yep. the combination is going to happen differently each time that is introduced. Sure. This is why so when parents have kids, multiple kids, they have actually, different kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true. But but without those two cells, then no life exists. Well, there's life. There's my life and the mother's life. It has yet to become right, but, a unique but neither life. neither does her oom nor nor your sperm have life on its own, though. I would consider that part of my own life. Well, I, I mean, mean look, if I scrape a skin cell off of me and it's no longer attached to my body, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. still part of my body, and it's going to die without me. It it will die without you, and but I mean, it was that's, still part of me. Your your skin. You replace every cell in your body, I think, uh, what was it, every, I can't remember. It's either 18 months or 72 months. It's one or the other. Uh, li- literally every cell, there's no part this of is you why that has you not been replaced. Replication yeah. error. Right. And the you today is not the you of 20 years ago either. There's been a lot of changes to your DNA in that time frame. Mm-hmm. So... This is where I think you have to start with the basics, which is definition. And if you take, uh, and I'm glad you're doing this with me because, you know, I'm not using the point at which God blows the spirit into the cells. I'm just looking at it from a mechanical standpoint. Mm-hmm. And if we, can, if we can come up with a definition that establishes an independent human life, not just potential life well, or life as a. So this is where you and this is where I said, which definition do you want? Do you want what I personally yeah. believe or not? So to me, again, as soon as a child is potentially viable, mm-hmm. and I'll be loose with the potentially because again, I think we'll get better and better over time. I wouldn't set a deadline or anything else because there's developmental differences. There's lots of things, mm-hmm. but when a child is potentially viable. I think it should have rights. Mm -hmm. So you get to the point of, (sighs) I mean, people are not going to like this, but you know, a few months into the pregnancy, you're starting to get towards that viability territory pretty quick. And, you know, I have a cousin that was a six month preemie and Mm -hmm. she survived and has done well. And she was born in the late eighties. So Mm -hmm. our technology has increased from there. Yeah. So I I think once the baby has a potential viability, it, it has to have basic inalienable human rights. Okay. So does that have none viability or at one cell? Again, are you talking about my religious views or are you talking about what I would say that the government has a reasonable position to enforce? Well, I guess whichever one matters more to you. So I'm, I'm not a militant <laughs> on this subject at all. I, I, I know truly, that's why, that's why it's more interesting talking to you than somebody who is a militant. Yeah. So, so my view is that Honestly, if if we were not using abortion as a means of contraception, this wouldn't mm-hmm. be an argument at all. Yeah, at least not for me. It just just wouldn't be. Here, here's the thing. It, it, it's it's like the difference of murders and crime versus genocide. Mm-hmm. 
There's a difference. Who was it, Stalin, that said one man, loss of one man's life is a tragedy, a loss of a million is a statistic or something like yeah, that? I, yeah. Whoever said it, it's a good statement. Roughly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I typically disagree with that. I think that, you know, yeah, m- murder is wrong and we should address that at an individual level. And, you know, we can even, we can talk about it that way. But when you're looking at the systematic removal of large amounts of population through just sheer irresponsibility, it's, mm-hmm. it's astonishing to me. And here, here's the thing. I, I don't want to see a massive spike in the birth rate just because abortion is illegal. That, 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 that's the wrong thing. What I would like mm-hmm. to see happen is people recognize that they have a responsibility and that anytime you engage in sex, you should take it as a serious act. And through that serious act, you should protect yourself and others from either, uh, an accidental pregnancy or STD or anything else. You should be serious about it. It shouldn't be a flippant decision. And sure. I think that maturity is what I would like to see more than anything. And the results would be a decrease in the need for abortion. Mm-hmm. So that's my view. Yeah. And I, I think most people, I, I would guess 80% of the population would agree that there should be a minimal need for abortion. That either none, like there shouldn't be a need at all or in some particular circumstances, not in all general circumstances. I think it's uh, maybe 20% or so that are in the, what I would describe as the more militant, you know, I want my abortion, I want it now, and I want it, you know, forever. I have a hard time believing that that person really exists. I know they do. I know they have to. They do, dude. Try dating a college student. Uh, yeah, I gave that up a <laughs> while back, man. Yeah, well, some of us go back to it. But it's, I think it's because they see abortion as a form of release from responsibility that they don't want. Well, why? But my question is why not avoid the responsibility in the first place? Be- because often they're drunk. Okay. Well, you, why, you made I mean, a you conscious decision say, to get drunk. Did someone? You could also drug say, you? "Why not just not drink?" Well, the hey. same reason that people drink is the same reason that they're afraid of getting pregnant. Okay. And by people, I mean like you know, nineteen-year-old girls. Well, nineteen-year-old girls shouldn't be legally drinking, now should they? Well, that's usually the kind that drinks to excess. I mean, by 21, they they may or may not be already, but I, I mean, well, that's okay. Now you're jumping topics on me because I also think 21 as a drinking age is part of the problem, not the solution. I tend to agree. If you start and- kids drinking at 15-ish, they have outgrown it within a few years, so it's no longer a novelty, and they'll be way less prone to get drunk when they're in college. I don't know, man. I'm in my mid-30s, and I still occasionally enjoy it, so there's that. Do you still get drunk? Occasionally. Well, okay. I guess I even know the answer to that myself directly, so why am I asking? <laughs> I mean, I, yes, I had an hour-long I, I, phone I, call I, with you while you were drunk. Uh, yeah, yeah, you have. Uh-huh. It, but that's not the common thing. That's no. not my everyday thing. But occasionally I will, yes. And, yeah. uh, you know. I don't, 
I'm my personality type does not understand that. It does not compute. I've I've maybe been to the point where I shouldn't be driving three times in my life. I've never thrown up. And in general, whenever I have been drinking, and I've drank a lot, and I was even a bartender. I was around alcohol all the time. I get free drinks from other bartenders. Like, it's a standard thing. If you're a bartender, you get tons of mm-hmm. free booze. But to me, anytime I start drinking, it's always a battle between not wanting to lose control, which my brain pretty much lives for, and using the alcohol as a, a method of social interactive lubricant yeah so what i hear is i don't you like have control. yeah exactly you, you have a problem with the loss of control i, I have no problem with it because i don't lose it right but <laughs> it's, it's everybody else that has a problem with it because they seem to not mind not being in the control of their own bodies which to me is bizarre it's the weirdest thing well i i mean we can get into lots of conversation here on people's desire to turn off things and why. I, I'll, I'll say this. Getting drunk is definitely not the norm for me because I feel similarly to you. There are times when I feel differently for a variety of reasons. But, you know, it shocks me that you don't understand this um, just from from the standpoint of society and you know powerful people going to a dominate dominate dominatrix there you go i can't speak today you know Mm -hmm. the it is i i think it's ultimately the same cathartic thing in some way or form or i think it is and this is also probably why i could never be a sub (laughs) it just doesn't work doesn't doesn't do anything for me i guess i've never been sufficiently powerful enough to have that particular kink. Yeah, be, well, I uh, certainly haven't either, but me. I, I do like turning off my brain occasionally. Uh, so. I I can't. I mean, this was my end result when I did my study with, with THC. Mm-hmm. Is I, I kept ramping up the dosage to try and get to a place where it actually has an impact on me. And I found that place, and there was a little over 100 what, micrograms, whatever the Whatever the micrograms the or milligrams, because that's it's a whatever big the difference. it's whatever the edibles are labeled in, and I I, I suspect is it milligram? I thought it would be micrograms. No, maybe I'm thinking in the LSD. US it's milligrams. That's a that's a different thing. Yeah, and so so I guess it's a little over 100 milligrams then. But the point is, having achieved that and doing the testing with my reaction times and in video games and you know things that that demand certain level of concentration you know what i, I think just, it may be i found it very non-productive may it may be since you are have the high tolerance that you do that mm-hmm. you've never gotten to the euphoric places that others have because of that i mean that could certainly be i'm not sure i'm willing to <laughs> Because that seems like, like, look, I think there are drugs that absolutely have a, like for, for not getting banned, I'm not going to say a beneficial effect, but I would say have an effect that is not negative. Like cocaine is one. Cocaine, if done in moderation, 
seems to have an effect of an increased operational state. You mean like, well, a perfect example would be Adderall. Uh, yeah. So, and that's, that's a, another good example. Exactly. Is if we look at the, what now is only available as a prescription medicine that, yeah, it is certain in the right quantity in the in the right dosage i guess i should say a variety of uppers can provide benefits to the users well not just uppers but even psilocybin microdose can provide a lot of benefits well it depends on what you're doing yeah 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 and then incidentally like for example if you drink some god now i'm blanking out see i I need to take my vitamin b is what i need to do i'm glad you're the dvorak in this situation and not me (laughs) It's definitely me, dude. Believe me. I'm thinking of the green alcohol. The, the What am I thinking of? Ab- absinthe. Right. So if you take and drink some absinthe with the original formula, mm-hmm. with, with wormwood with worm extract. And, yep. Yeah. It absolutely does have an effect. And I think one it of depends the, on your body chemistry, but sure. Go yeah, on. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But it does have an effect on me. So I've done some tests with it as well, where I actually I did a painting just in normal sort of unaltered state. And then I, I then consumed massive quantities of absinthe and then painted after that. And I think the absinthe definitely does open up more of the creative sort of... Uh, driver for me so i I totally understand why many writers and and artists utilized absinthe as a preferred alcohol yeah so you know it's interesting because i have uh very liberal ideas when it comes to drugs right Mm -hmm. i you own your body you can put into it whatever you wish i did some pot in college I've done some pot as an adult mm-hmm. and it's just not my thing. Never has mm-hmm. been alcohol and caffeine are my drugs of choice. Mm. Always have been, you know, I don't know. I can't do caffeine anymore. Sick coffee, man, but yeah. I don't do it in large quantities anymore. I mean, there was a time when I was drinking lots and lots of coffee, but I, I've uh, yeah. less than a pot a day. Well, I've always know? liked espresso. I've, I've never been much of a, a diluted brown water guy, but the, yes, that, that is the correct, you got the correct gist for me on that. But what I found is I, I just had some coffee recently that I made maybe a month ago is it, it just bumped up my blood pressure too much. Mm. And it was to the point where I could like feel without even measuring that. Yeah. I think I've got high blood pressure right now. Like you can feel it in your eyeballs and your teeth. I've never had that situation i'm I'm always on the low end of the blood pressure scale that's good that's good keep keep it in that place it's a better zone to be in and so consequently i'm like yeah i don't feel good after drinking a high high caffeine content drink anymore the way i used to i used to enjoy i used to drink them all the time used to enjoy it i've got a i've got a a european uh, like two thousand dollar espresso maker at home Mm -hmm. that i use for heating up water for tea so point. I, I, I'm going to draw a conclusion here that I think will tie in nicely and help wrap us up. But it seems to me that the evil, evil heathen Gene Natuliev 
is actually leading a pretty a pretty pure life when it comes well, to substances. And given at least. that I haven't drank alcohol at all this year, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Uh-huh. You don't drink coffee. I haven't you don't drink anything this year. No, I'm actually Jesus. Gene's turning into. You Here's know, the thing: uh, I can literally be any religion tomorrow. And it wouldn't be difficult at all. I can be a Muslim tomorrow. I can be a, a, a Mormon tomorrow. Like, I wouldn't have to give up anything because I don't really d- eat these things. Yeah, I mean, I eat bacon occasionally, but it's not the staple. Mm. It's not like it's a every morning ritual for me. I What I couldn't give up would be like filet mignon. <laughs> yeah, I, uh... I did that when I was in college. I was a vegetarian for uh, two and a half years. I think you would have other issues on the adjusting to the religious lifestyle, Gene. Possibly. Possibly. Unless you're living in a Margaret Atwood novel. I'm not saying that. Look, here's the thing. I think all religions are much better with money. Amen. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I think all of society. Goes for Christianity, goes for Islam, goes for Goes for atheism. I I think that the worst position you can be in a society is a serf. The fact of the matter is, even even just being upper middle class, war comes, things happen. Your position is far far better off than yeah. the than than the serfs, you know. Absolutely, no. I I think it's a money is simply saved work, and you can argue about whether it was justified that some people were getting paid. X amount per dollar versus others. But what you have is money is work that you've already done, but you haven't traded for anything yet. That's all it is. Well, and here's the thing. Most people don't like to think of this, but the fact of the matter is, yes, there are some people who have gotten wealthy through nepotism and things like that. I.e. Hunter Biden. Great example. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority. You don't think Hunter is working for that money? I I haven't looked at his art, but I can't He's imagine ruined it. his health. He's ruined I, his health because I his dad's making him do this shit. I can't imagine his art's much better than George Bush's. R- regardless, the point is okay. that there there are those people who get wealthy or have money because of some nefarious circumstances. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is, most people don't like to realize that the majority of people earn whatever they earn through their own work and be great, be it small, whatever it is, it, it, it's deserved because of either talent, yeah. uh, a good idea, or just but, sheer industriousness and ability to bust one's ass. Right. And, and there's always an element of luck. And this is where the fairness comes in. It's like, well, it's not fair that I'm making 25 bucks an hour and this other person's making 250 bucks an hour. Well, it may or may not be. It, it like you'd really have to examine the amount of effort that both people have put into not just doing the work, but in learning things to get to the point of being able to do the work. Mm-hmm. Like anybody can be an Uber driver as long as you have a driver's license, right? It's a fairly low bar, but a lot fewer people can be a Formula One driver. And it's still driving a car, but the amount of effort and energy you've put in to be able to drive a car really well. And then on top of it, to drive a car that is meant to be driven at the very edge of capability, that makes you a lot more unique. And therefore you're making more money than the person that drives a car for Uber. Well, I mean, it can come down to this. Let's say you start driving 
a car for Uber and you, you just got your driver's license, let's say you're uh, a typical Gen Zer and you didn't get your driver's license until you're 30, 18, 20, right? <laughs> right. But right. whatever, you're right. old enough to work. Yeah. It, how many hours a week do you work? So Gene, right. let me ask you this. How many hours a week do you work on average? Well, it depends what you include in the work. But I mean, if you include things like doing research and just, you know, planning and things th- that end up earning you money. Yeah. I mean, certainly probably somewhere between 60 and 80. Okay. So the average person in the U.S., if we really think about how much they actually work, someone putting in 40 hours a week is probably really only putting in 30, 25, 30 hours a week because they're mm-hmm. socializing. Quite frankly, right. dicking yeah. off the rest of the time. Right, right. Okay, well, I'm going to revise mine to then maybe 40 to 50. Okay. <laughs> I do I do fuck around quite a bit too. Okay, so, so in, you know, I, I will too on occasion, but in the environment I work on, I honest amount of labor put in in a week is yeah. easily between probably 40 and 60 hours a week. And the difference there between the 25 to 30 and, and you can measure this in multiple ways. Let's just say actual hours in front. So 40 Mm -hmm. to, you know, 50 to 60 hours a week, however you want to measure it. That, that little bit of percentage, that little bit of absolute time difference, but you know, 25 to 50% difference in actual workload that adds up over time exponentially is what ends but up it, happening. But it's also not just about time because an ability and everything else. Yeah. That and I, I forget what the rule is called, it. but basically in any organization, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You're roughly saying analogous to the Pareto distribution. Yeah, I think it is. It is because, and this has been shown over and over in large companies and even in smaller businesses as well is that once you go through and you interview everybody and you really figure out, and and I've done quite a few of these myself from a business efficiency consulting standpoint for different companies, what you really realize is there's usually two or three or four or 20 or 30 or 40, if it's a large company, really sort of key people that are the big movers that everybody relies on. And then the rest of the folks just sort of are ancillary. They, they help those people get to where they're going. And, it does, and it's not, I'm not saying that there's like 20% is management and 80% are the peons doing the work. Not at all. Quite often, these people that are actually the biggest movers, the ones that, that, are, that shift the biggest levers in the company, they're usually either lower management or, or just even uh, solo contributors that are just at, the, at their you know, very experienced level. And that are They're, top performers, the people yeah. who can sit down and write, uh, a, a maybe either write a large report detailing out the minutia of whatever process right. it is that you're needing, or the the board operator that can sit there and from memory start the power plant up without re- having to reference the 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 step by step instructions exactly. in hand procedure. That's a great example. You know, because they've done it so many times, because they've done it efficiently. They're the people that you go to when you know you have to solve a problem. And that's that's the key thing. It's not just memorizing procedures. It's you can also you can always tell the people you can rely that on their experience. When you when you say we have a problem, we have to figure out how to solve it. 
there's usually 20% or less of the people in the room that will say, all right, so here's what we should start. And most people, when they're presented with unusual or rarely occurring circumstances, they don't want to risk being wrong. No, they're a little lost. They're like, I'll do what you guys want me to do, but I have no idea. And it's the people that are willing to figure out how to solve problems. The, the, the ones that, that will use the phrase that you've seen in movies that has businesses, don't worry, I will take care of it. And well, it's not just for assassins either, okay, guys? This is, this is a phrase that a lot of people use. Well, it's one of those things that people actually do. It's something that you, you end up having those people who are not afraid to be wrong. And, you know, they, they're, they, they put their head on the chopping block in these situations yeah. and say, I got this. And if they're wrong, they're mm-hmm. fucked. Mm-hmm. But guess what? You have some people who are talented that aren't wrong. That they're, they're have right gone through wrong. their. Yeah. I'm sorry. They're more right than they are wrong. Exactly for an extended period of time. Yep. It's Over not time. a oh I got it once right so therefore I'm golden. No, exactly. it's I have been. There are very few times that I'm that I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. Um. But the the, the differentiator there, I think, oftentimes is the willingness to work the willingness to put in the effort to become that expert and everything else. And then even if you have the book smarts, and this is what differentiates the high performers in private industry versus academia is the high performers in, in, in private industry put their neck on the line. The academics never do. Not once you have tenure, there's no reason to ever. Well, unless you're Jordan Peterson, which he's just, a yeah, unique yeah. individual, but no, he he is very very unique in academia. There, most most people in academia and Brett will modify their opinions to suit the least amount of stress. Absolutely. And, and you've been you've been watching a lot of his stuff. I see Peterson. Yeah, because you keep sending me more and more of his videos. Ah, uh, man, I've been a Peterson fan for a long time. Like the the very first video of him mm-hmm. standing outside the college talking to people i yep. i've been tracking him I, he resonates with me a lot because yeah. i'll just say this he's quite obviously a christian whether he wants to publicly admit it or not and he dances around the question of it, yeah. whether you depends on what you mean believe in god you know i think he's me. becoming more at ease with it but that's one thing i always notated is like he's really a smart guy but he's christian and well, he's not, and I, I say that with a smile on my face, but mm-hmm. but he won't, like, he's not an obvious out there kind of Christian. He just kind of kept his religion private. But I think it's becoming a little more. A well, little and I more think he's more on the Orthodox point. side than I would say the evangelical, but regardless. I don't think it, he's on particularly either side. I'm just basing it off of, you know, his biblical lectures and everything else. I'm an avid consumer of Peterson, I would say. Yeah. And part of that is because I really enjoy his philosophy. I agree mm-hmm. with his uh, analysis of the Western canon and, you know, Western ethos and value. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he articulated early on that I have absolutely agreed with, and he said better than I ever could is that, you know, the the right level of analysis is the individual and that this whole idea of intersectionality is just 
going to end up in the same place, you know, because, because you get to infinitum really quickly as you add multiple layers of analysis all the way through. There, there are well, lots of things. Well, you start creating like a hierarchy of, of the intersectionalities. Well, like, but... Is it better the, the pro- to be gay and black or is it better to be, you know, trans and black? Or is it better to be black and a gay woman, right? At what right. level of abstraction do you take that to? Yeah. And what it comes down to is the right level of analysis is not a group identity think I, I, ideation. Well, it, this, it's the individual. I think that's the irony is that the ultimate conclusion. The ultimate intersectionality is the individual. Is one. It is yes. the individual. That, that's like you, if you are intellectually honest, you can't help but to end up taking it to its ultimate level to its uh, ultimate conclusion well, to its conclusion yeah of, of individuality yes that's where you end up and that's that's the irony is that uh 99% of the people hell more than that that study the topic never see that that irony in it so so what i like about peterson is that a he's an apologist for the west mm-hmm. not just christianity but the west in general and that he is an individualist and he's not only an individualist, but he's for personal responsibility. Those are my core tenets. So See, I, I, I think it's pretty much the same as the stuff I like about him, which is he's a snappy, he's a former drug addict <laughs> and, uh, and, and he's asked a question about women voting. So I, I think we're saying the same thing. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, he, he, he's definitely the cautionary tale, right? So you and I were talking about you not understanding why people would give up their yeah. control over their body. Well, mm-hmm. he, he's someone who I think is a little bit of a potential hypochondriac, but regardless of bit. that, I'd agree with that. And so regardless of that, there is someone who is quite obviously operating in, I mean, I, I, I don't know what his IQ is, but God, it's got to be high. I mean, I interface with some fairly intelligent people, and at least his verbal IQ is through the roof. I don't know about that. I I think he definitely has a high IQ, but it's not anywhere near as high as some of the people I've met. I think that he is he is extremely well spoken. And a lot, well, he's yes, he he has spoken for over twenty years in front of people. (laughs) He's a public speaker because he was teaching a what would be by a lot of people determined as soft science. And so he's not talking about chemical formulas or math formulas. He's talking about results and he has to be able to re- express the re- the results of his soft science in a manner that is understandable to, you know, freshmen and sophomores. And so I think, and he's also very well read. I mean, that's one thing I think you guys share is that he reads like a, a book every few days. And so he has a very good English, not just comprehension, but like you said, his verbal skills are really good. I totally agreed with you on that, but he's also been really, you know, focusing one specific area for a long time. And I think that makes him an expert at that area. And I I would not deny that he is intelligent, but, but I've met people that are just amazing at a whole multitude of things at the same time. And it just undeniably gifted folks. Yeah, I, 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 I won't disagree. I mean, yeah. I, I, 
I'm just saying that there are. He is very. I'm not sure how how easily at. he could change a tire or work in a car engine. Well, that that's a totally different acumen. I, I'm not suggesting that. So th- there are different types of intelligence. I don't think anyone's arguing that. I think their IQ is a pure, you know, is very pure in that it's your ability to reason. Then you have, you know, spatial right. acuity and other things that come into. Exactly. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about is that I'm not saying he has crap spatial acuity, but. I've not seen examples of him having extremely good spatial acuity either. You haven't seen him distrib- you know, going through mechanical skills. Got it. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And now, yeah. I, and, and just so you're aware, I've actually seen him in person twice. Mm-hmm. And I've watched probably about 100 hours of his teaching videos. Yeah, I, I actually have seen him in person as well. Yeah. And, and I, and, and I think we've both read his, his first book as well. I've actually read all three of his books and have, yeah, a couple and of I, I have copies. not read the two more popular ones, the 12 rules and 12 more rules. Yeah. Yeah. Both are good. I think there's a lot of good in there. I'm not a self-help book person at all. That's the main reason and, I haven't read them. Well, it, the only reason why I read them is because out of respect for him and actually reading his first book mm-hmm. before 12 Rules for Life was even mm-hmm. published. And Maps of Meaning is deep. Maps of Meaning took yeah. me a good three reads before I really had what mm-hmm. I considered a very strong hold on exactly the arguments he was making the whole way through. Now, did you read that after you knew him for his stance? Because that's what I I did. I didn't, I never heard of him until I saw him in that first video, as you mentioned, standing up to the students that are trying to get him to use their pronouns and him explaining why that's ridiculous. And I thought, well, who is this guy? And I saw that he he had a book out. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. So (laughs) it it was, hey, Compelled speech is anti-free speech. Yeah. Well, that's right. It's exactly right. And who is this person? And holy crap, this is a university professor standing up to a crowd of people in a fashion that I would never have imagined any of my professors doing. And you have to remember that this is also, Jesus, when when was that video? Mm, It was... Eight years ago? Nine? it was a long time ago. So this is easily 2014 or, or or less. And so you got to remember, I'm not that far out of college at that point. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. I I was class of 08. So, you know, I'm thinking back to my college professors. I'm thinking back to my college experience and going, who the hell is this? This is far more in line with something that, I, I would consider almost heroic in nature on how well, it was heroic. I mean, I, I think what he did, what, what Brett Weinstein Steen well, oh, yeah. did, uh, same uh, thing. Not just Brett Weinstein, but his wife as well. Yeah, yeah, but I think mostly Brett, though. You know, They were both wife, targeted. They were both targeted because of him, though. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> she's on the right side. Don't get me wrong. She was a more but popular professor at Evergreen than he mouth. was. Absolutely. Yeah. People, people definitely, I think a lot of people like their classes. There's, it takes a certain amount of guts to be able to push back against the mob. And most people lack that. And it, there has to be a stronger desire for truth 
than for self-preservation or likability? Well, I 100%, you know, I, I think part of my motivation, my personal motivation for having this conversation with you. And again, I try and forget that we're talking to anyone else. It's just me and you having a conversation. It's part of my microphones mo- in front of our faces. <laughs> yeah. But part of my motivation for that is to take the ideas I would express in private and dare to risk expe- mm-hmm. expressing them publicly, which may bring the hangsman's noose around my neck, may yeah. cost me money, may cost me my livelihood. But being unafraid enough to say, no, this is my opinion. This is what I think. And if you don't like what I have to say, then by all means, let, let's have a conversation and discuss. But this cancel culture has to stop. And I think Absolutely. the only way it does stop is by people standing up and being willing to have conversations and question narratives. Yeah, we have to cancel the cancelers. We have to make them pariahs. Well, we have to get to the point where, you know, my, my view on the Civil War, let's take that. I'm not a racist. I am not fighting for anything. But when I say my read of history is this, why should that ever affect anything in my current life? If you if you think it's different, then please educate me. Show me. But th- I guarantee you there are many people who would take what I said about the Civil War today and run to my boss and try and get me fired. Mm-hmm. And that to me is where we are failing as a society. If you disagree with my speech, the answer isn't to get me fired. The answer is to educate me and say, you know what? I don't agree with what you said. Here's why. Here's where I think you got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And and likewise, if somebody's trying to get to me to fire somebody that works for me, I don't care if they're a self-avowed communist. I may disagree with them completely. But what I pay them to do is a particular job. And if they're doing a good enough job, I really don't care. I don't care if they're an, you know, an ex-felon. Uh, if they're doing a good job, doing the job is what I'm paying them for. And there's no reason to fire somebody. I don't, you know, I don't care if they dress up in women's clothing or men's clothing or whatever, or no clothing, if they're nudist. Like none of these things have an impact on somebody's ability to do their job well. Well, I, I, I agree. So for instance, sexual orientation or coming out or whatever, I, you're, you're an adult. You have the right to do what you want behind closed doors or otherwise. The the thing I would say is that... Or, or the cameras of OnlyFans. Yes, indeed. <sighs> Plug for Gene's channel, by the way. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Check me out on OnlyFans. <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it's interesting, and I think this could, could possibly be our last topic because I know you got to go soon. Yeah, yeah. It's already but, been an hour and a half, so... Yeah, you know, it, I think we're starting to see some go woke, go broke, moves especially with like netflix you know now there's a lot of concern that their anti-censorship regime that they're talking about will include things like cuties and so on but i think Mm -hmm. it's an interesting move especially given musk and twitter and everything else that they're saying we're going to buy what we want to buy we're going to do what we want to do and we don't give a shit what our employees think about it please no comments which should have been their stance from the beginning and it I was, was asinine that it was anything else. Yeah. And I was one of the people that canceled when Cuties came out. I was like, I've been on, on Netflix for 18 years or something very early on. And 
And it's like, you guys are insane if this is what you're currently going to be showing. Well, and as a customer, that's an appropriate yeah. comment. Yeah, but, but I'm not like but, trying to get the company delisted off the stock exchange. I, I'm, well, but, but, I'm uh, fine if a lot of us just no longer participate in that. Well, but here, here's the insane thing is the Dave Chappelle stuff and the employees that work there are trying right. to do that. That yeah. That's, you know, well, sli- you know bite, the, to, bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah, and I know you have, but if, if people have been listening to No Agenda long enough, it, it's literally the noodle boy. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I don't mind if the owner also works here, but they have to put in their fair, fair share of work, you know, like the rest of us do. And, and we should have a discussion on the rules. It, Yes, exactly. We should have a discussion. That's the way that these people working in Netflix were behaving. And that's the way that absolutely from personal experience, I've seen people behaving in Facebook. This is the way that Google people behave. This is the way that Apple people behave. The And let's be the clear. The people that have entered the workforce in the last eight years or less, they have a very distorted view of what their place is in that workforce. And let's be clear, Gene, because the people who we're talking about are in the 80%, not the 20%. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. They're, they're not the ones that are the big movers. Yeah. And so I'm glad to hear that, but it may be too little too late. And it very conveniently coincides with the fact that they had a, a big loss for the quarter, which resulted from a lot of people unsubscribing and more they're predicting a lot more will be unsubscribing. And mm. so they would have had to lay people off anyway. And in some ways, this is just a quote, good idea, unquote, that somebody came up with like, Hey, why don't we ask for voluntary people leaving voluntarily first? Well, and it's and, a way to get rid of the fifth column inside your own ranks. Yeah. Yeah, and and if you're a uh, a fan of Douglas Adams, then you'll know that this is how the Earth was populated. <laughs> is that there was a society that was running out of room or commodities or something, and they're like, okay, we're gonna have to leave our planet, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna send the most important people, the people that we can't live without, on the first mega spaceship, and then the other two groups will follow on. So the three groups were people that do the actual work, people that are the the business owners, the senior management, and the third group was all the middle management and the bureaucrats. And these were the people put on the first ship to get saved first to go in repopulating a new world. And of course, the thing you're supposed to understand from that is that the first group and the second group realized that this third group is unnecessary and they're just consuming resources. And so if you get rid of them and you just learn to work together, then you end up having a much higher percentage productive society. And the spaceship that actually left that contained all the, the, the middle management and, and the bureaucrats was the one that ultimately ended up landing on earth. And that we are that population descendants of those people from that crash spaceship. So two things, because I, I don't think we've had a book recommendation yet. So I'll oh, say Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy. There we go. 
Yeah, well, there's that. There's that one from Gene. The other one I would say is, oh, shit, Orson Scott Card. I'm going to have to look up the book. I think it's Treason, but it's one of his first novels where it's Mm. human specialization. It's pretty interesting. I'll look it up for the next one since Gene came up with Hitchhiker's Guide. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a good good way to end this would just be to say, so long and thanks for all the fish. And as always, thanks for joining me. Please do keep in mind that nothing in this podcast represents financial, legal, or medical advice. 